surprised her. In these moments, she thought, though she had never dared to try it, that if she applied her foot to the gas pedal and took her hands off the wheel, her car would take her wherever God wanted her to be. This five years familiar experience had not always involved Cora Jean, but others like her. So Audrey had long since stopped questioning how it happened. The why of it was clear enough. Audrey was called by God to be a comforter, and she was glad for the job. Audrey had a knack for helping people in any circumstance to look toward the brightness of life, not the silver lining of their own dark cloud, which often didn't exist, but to the light of the world, which could be seen by anyone willing to look for it. In Cora Jean's case, this meant not dwelling too long on the details of her prognosis, but in reading aloud beautiful, hopeful, complex poetry, especially the Psalms and the Brownings and Franz Wright. It meant watering the plants, which Harlan ignored, and offering to warm a meal for him before she left. It meant giving candid answers to Cora Jean's many-layered questions about Audrey's personal faith in particular, about sin and forgiveness and justice. And about the problem of so much suffering in a world governed by a good God. Cora Jean seemed preoccupied with this particular question, and her focus seemed to be connected to the yellowed family portrait hanging on the wall opposite the bed. There were two brunette girls in the 30-year-old picture. Audrey judged the age by Cora Jean's bug-eyed, plastic-framed glasses, Harlan's rust-colored corduroy blazer, and the children's Dorothy Hamill hairstyles. Audrey had a similarly aged childhood portrait of herself with her parents. She guessed the daughters to be nine, maybe ten, and they appeared to be twins, though one of them was considerably chubbier than the other. A pendant on a large link silver chain hung from the upper left corner of the cheap wood frame. The pendant was also silver, crudely hammered into a flat circle like a washer that framed a small translucent rock. Audrey suspected it to be an uncut diamond. It would be rude to ask whether she was right about the stone, but on the day the fog broke and the sun brought a wispy smile to Cora Jean's pale face, Audrey decided to ask about the portrait she often stared at. Audrey lifted her teacup to her lips and blew off the steam. Tell me about your family, she said gently, indicating the picture with her eyes. Cora Jean's smile crumpled, and the soft wrinkles of her skin became a riverbed for tears. Audrey wished she hadn't said anything, meaning to apologize for having heaped some kind of emotional ache on top of the cancer's pain. She returned her sloshing teacup to the tray, then reached out and placed her hands on top of Cora Jean's, which were clutching the sheets. That was the second unfortunate choice Audrey made that day, with a third yet to occur before the sunset. The woman's sorrow, if it could be thought of as something chemical, entered Audrey's fingertips, burning the pads of her fingers, the joints of her knuckles, her wrists. The flaming liquid pain seeped up her arms, searing as it went, elbows, shoulders, collarbone, 
And then the poison found her spine, an aqueduct that delivered breathtaking hurt to every nerve in Audrey's body. She yelped involuntarily. Here was a sensation that she had never experienced. She wished that she could save the dying woman from the terror. She also wished that she had never dipped her toe into these hellish waters. The pain bowed her over Corrigine's fragile body, a posture at once protective and impotent, and paralyzed Audrey. The women cried together until every last drop of the agony had let itself out of Audrey's eyes. In time, Corrigine said, Thank you for understanding, and fell asleep, exhausted. Audrey, who understood not a bit of what had transpired, said nothing. She turned the radio to Cora Jean's favorite classical station, then waited, agitated and restless, for the hospice nurse to arrive.